Greetings, friends and fellow Damons, and welcome to another episode of Damonosophy. This is, in fact, episode number 100. Did you ever think we'd last this long? So, here we are, and, you know, I was trying to figure out something special to do for that 100th episode. And it just so happens this episode coincides with the winter solstice. It's now December 23rd, just two days before Christmas. And we're in the midst of winter storm Elliot sweeping over all of these United States. Here in the city of Houston, Texas, last I checked, it was 17 degrees Fahrenheit. That is, I am almost certain the coldest I have ever seen it since I've lived here. I'll check the weather every day, uh, but I feel like that's the coldest. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, and you know, everyone's like watching Texas right now because we had the cold snap a couple of years ago and lost power on our selfish internal power grid. So far, things are holding up. Knock on wood, uh, no power loss here, the heat's running, so we're all sitting inside, uh, nestled all warm and snug. But you know, one thing that I always say I'm going to do an episode about um, when the time is right is for the Yuletide season, and shit always gets in the way and I never get around to it but for some reason this year here I am nothing better to do on December 23rd than jump in and make another podcast episode and this time it's going to be about the season there's nothing else I, that's really worth uh talking about right now <laughs> um so the question is this how does a follower of the left-hand path deal with Christmas? A lot of people, when they think of the left-hand path, they just are thinking of like what I would call the um, youthful stage of left-hand path. The youthful stage um, involves um, a lot of what um, Dr. Flowers identified as antinomianism in his Lords of the Left-Hand Path. And so this is sort of the idea of rebelliousness, um, rejection of the old guard, rejection of monotheism. Um, this is where your, your black mass and creative sacrilege stuff like comes into being. Um, and what this really, uh, the, the function that that really serves is when the psyche realizes that it needs to uh, break away from groupthink, that it's been enthralled, that the individual has been enthralled and controlled and and uh, captured by groupthink and collectivism, there's an urge to break away and that there has to be sort of a, a force, an action to do that. So really, it's a internal internal like breaking away and separation but that's not always something that you can grasp right away that's kind of ethereal so we start out 
with tangible things that exist in the world around us, the tangible icons of collectivism and groupthink and religiously um, in Western culture. I'm sorry, guys, that's, it ends up being Christianity. Um, so one of the central uh, rituals for this and, uh, and, and Anton LaVey's uh, scope of things was, of course, the, the Black Mass. And when people started playing with the Black Mass in, in, in sort of a you know, post-Age of Satan sort of environment, you start looking at all the other things that hold me down that I'm going to rebel against. You can do a Black Mass against Islam if you come from that, or, or you could do a uh, Black Mass against, uh, I don't know, social democracy if you think that that's like the thing that's mainly keeping you down. Any, any sort of groupthink propaganda uh, veneer is, is worthy of rebelling against. And a very popular topic for that is the season of Christmas. You always hear young, young left-hand path Satanists and such saying, gosh, what, why do I have to play along with this Christian holiday? Then within the extreme Christian side of things, you have every people reminding you, oh, don't forget the reason for the season. It's Jesus Christ. So I think where a lot of people go with this right away is, you know what? I can still celebrate and participate in the season without supporting the popular iconography of it. So this is where people uh, get into a reemergence of paganism and a rediscovery of the pagan symbolism, pre-Christian symbolism in uh, Christmas. You know, the Christmas tree, that's the Norse Yggdrasil, the world tree. So I can focus on that. Um, Santa Claus is a lot like Odin. I can focus on that. And then you go back to the Romans and they practice Saturnalia, which is very indulgent. And they have the gift giving um, aspect in that. So you can go through and pick up all these parts. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the Catholic Church decided we're going to put the birth of Jesus on this day to supplant and replace all these other pagan things that were like going on at the time. So fair enough. What I want to focus on talking about here for me personally is having been walking this path for the greater part of my life now, uh, over, you know, over 35 years going on 40 years, probably. Yeah, no, it's, it is, it's, it's a little over 40 years. Oolong tea helps you think. Ah, oolong tea helps you think. So, where was I going with all that? One of the things that I found significant about the season that relates to the Levian satanic perspective has to do with Santa Claus and the custom of which is I, I found is like prevalent like way beyond way beyond probably more so outside of Christianity outside of Christian households um that the Santa Claus mythology and it's sort of a intentional uh intentional uh mythology um where just everyone just consensually 
it's it's accepted as normal to tell your children that Santa Claus really exists and sort of perpetuate this this untruth. Technically, it's not true from a completely materialist, rationalist perspective. You know, Ayn Rand would say Santa Claus is a myth. Don't lie to people. But we sort of intentionally lie to children about Santa Claus existing. And why is that? Well, on one level, it's because it's it's fun and because the children like love it so much and get so much out of this like this exhilaration this exhilaration from the suspension of disbelief and thinking that oh yeah there's this person that that comes and does this and and a lot of the santa claus mythology is also based on the power of wishing the power of wishing which can suspend disbelief or what um, what um, uh, Napoleon Hill called uh, applied faith, not forced blind blind faith, where you just are you know you're you're forced to believe in something that's that because you're told you have to, but rather you voluntarily wish for something so strongly and desire it so strongly that the rational material reality aspect of it becomes less important than the strength and the power of that wish and that desire. And this is a key to magic. This is a key to magic as Anton LaVey taught it and as it is expounded in works of his like uh, the Satanic Bible or especially the Devil's Notebook has uh, some great essays which, which touch on this, the power of desire, the power of, of wish. And that's really the essence of of magic and that's really the unique thing that um LeVay brought to the uh practice of magic that you know it's not really about you know the time of day or this hour or this herb or this you got to draw this thing just exactly right no what's really about is the power of your emotional response your emotional depth and wish for whatever it is um, and this also takes you on a path through assigning value to yourself and to things in the world because you realize there's a lot of things that initially it seems like you do wish for really bad, like, you know, like material things, like, you know, superficial things. You might wish for it really bad, but then you find that wish doesn't last very long or you get it and you don't really care. And then as you go through life, you feel that your wishes... Uh, increasingly are directed towards something um, more significant. And so you learn about yourself this way and you learn about what uh, you value and what value is. So anyhow, that's the first thing I, that I find uh, significant about this time of year. It's a time of year in which that sort of applied faith and unabashed uh, selfish uh, wishing um, is is um, is is legitimized. Well, I don't know if legitimized is the right word. It's it's um, indicated. And it's facilitated by the symbologies, uh, the cultural symbologies associated with the season, and that affords an opportunity to kind of like um, develop the energy of that. Uh, inner wish 
which we all have the capacity for inside of us. But as I've grown older through the years, at the same time that that potential for wishing is opened up in it, that same movement makes us more uh, receptive to the spiritual aspects of life. And I just, I, I can't think of a better word uh, to describe it. It opens us up uh, and allows us to be more receptive to uh, something that's, that's higher in life than other times of the year. I think a contrast to this seasonally would be the dog, dog days of Sirius, which is on the, you know, in July, August, on the opposite side of the calendar. And that's the heaviest time of the year when it's like the, the burden. And here's one of the great keys of power. If you can take an ordinary thing that appears in life to, that culture and society presents, and you can create your own secret meaning and significance to it, then that is a great secret of power. The gravity of of Earth and the planet itself like pulls us down like harder than other other times in the year. So there's something about um, the uh, the holiday season that offers a lightness and an opportunity to perhaps receive something higher. And one of the recurring themes is the idea of a spirit incarnated in matter. So there's a lot of ways of, of interpreting that movement. One is the idea of, of, of magic that an idea can be transformed into reality, into the material world. So it's the same, that's the same movement as if I say spirit incarnating in matter or spirit willfully incarnating in matter. And this is also the symbolism that's baked into um, the mythology in the Gospels of the, the birth of, of Jesus. And so here I will I have to step back and qualify the um, left-hand path approach to Jesus as being essentially a left-hand path magician, um, a theory which um, is supported by many, um, many in, in academia. Um, Dr. Flowers talks about this in, in Lords of the Left-Hand Path. He considers Jesus a Lord of the Left-Hand Path. Um, and, and a lot of this you can see in, in the Gospels when they say like the kingdom of heaven is within you. That's a left-hand path. Um, approach to life and spirituality, but then when the when the when the typically when the church takes this information and presents it to people, it puts this veneer of authoritarianism or collectivism over it. That you know, he no heaven is this place that um, you can go to through the priesthood. At least that's specifically how uh, the Catholic Church originally structured things. So in any case. We're just talking about the mythology that's found in the Gospels when we look at the 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 story of like Jesus uh, being born, uh, and how this is a an example of the 
spirit incarnating itself into matter. So it's an image of the divine father, which is like that represents the idea or the spirit incarnating itself into the world, the, the real world. You can say material universe, um, and that is like the sun. So it's a similar way that through an act of magic, you take your ideas, your wish, and you, through force of will, through action, you incarnate it into the real world where it really exists. The story of Jesus, though, is taking this rather than an, an act of personal magic. It's, it's taking this, this pattern and it's applying it to mankind as a whole. And so the next thing that happens really significantly, I think, in the story is that you have these three wise men showing up or the three oriental kings, which almost everyone, even Christian uh, scholars and theologians agree that these were our Zoroastrians or they represent uh, the Zoroastrians. And it's the fact that they appear in here is a, a tribute by the, the authors of the Gospels. It's a tribute to the uh, Zoroastrian, um, the affluence of the Zoroastrian teaching uh, that they had advanced knowledge of astronomy, um, astrology, because they're also following this, this, this star, like the guiding star that takes them there. So the, on another level, the three kings represent the idea of an esoteric school or an esoteric school teaching or the idea of a mystery school, um, like the ancient priesthood of Set or the Pythagoreans or, or, you know, Plato's Academy and things like things of that nature um, also would be uh, relevant here. So it's the idea that only within the esoteric school are they able to see this pattern of spirit incarnating in matter. They're able to identify it because they know the secret of it. And indeed, this is the secret of of uh, the secret formula of Zarathustra, Zoroastrianism, is good thoughts, good words, good deeds. In other words, your good thoughts, your, your spirit, which travels through words and enters into deeds, into the real world, into incarnation, into the real world. That's the pattern. So that's what's being represented by the Zoroastrians coming, and they are seeing this this act of spirit incarnated matter within this individual. So the next point at which this story gets derailed by the churchy interpretations of it is the focus on just this one guy, Jesus. And this is another subject for debate out of the Gospels. Sometimes he's the son of man. Sometimes he's the son of God. Which is it? Um, and the son of man side of things, really, like I, I think is 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 the more accurate uh, in, interpretation of it. And and what this means is that 
you know, it's not just Jesus that is the Son of God, a Son of God. Um, and then by him, everyone else gets to be Son of God. He, oh, he died for your sins for you. No, 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 no. What this is describing is this process of spirit incarnated in, into matter is something that all humans experience and all humans are here on the planet as a result of it. And that is also part of the Zoroastrian teaching that every conscious being before, who is on earth right now, before they came here, they were a spiritual being, which they called a Fravashi, who made a choice to come to this world. Now, what, why did they choose to do that? Well, it has to do with fighting the good fight. It has to, has to do with fighting against uh, sleep and ignorance and fighting in favor of consciousness and the principle of consciousness. So, so it gets into all kinds of other things. But the, the, the point here is that spirit incarnated in matter is something that all of us have. And the story about Jesus is just designed to illustrate how that pattern plays out um, and, and the elements that are necessary or that tend to go along with it. So we already mentioned um, that there is an influence of a, an esoteric school or from uh, a teaching from ideas or from individuals who have gone before. So remember that Mary and Joseph, they come into town uh, looking for a place to have a baby and they come to this, the only place they can find is this inn. No rooms in this inn. People are bustling about. They don't care about that. They have no room for it. This is how like the, the main, represents how the, uh, the mainstream of life does not care about this spirit incarnated in matter type stuff and is too busy for it and doesn't see it and will not not make room for it. This is like how we are through most of the year, if you put it in a seasonal context, but you can say this is how we are through most of our lives or most of the day. How do I spend most of my day? Well, getting distracted by bullshit, running around like an automaton, reacting to things. And then maybe at some point I'll stop and reflect on on myself, reflect on my in, internal world, or or remember myself for a moment. So this the the struggle to find a place to make room for the birth of of spiritual or the incarnation of spirit into matter um, is is a struggle against the mainstream of life. And what happens is it 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 happens in a place where no one sees it. They have to go out to the back. They go to the the stables, you know, with a manger, away in a manger. Um, and that's because the spirit incarnating in matter has to happen away from all of that. And so you see how misguided it is when people take their, uh, are, are taking like spiritual ideas and trying to mainstreamize them um, and, and, and put them out there for the sake of getting attention and stuff like that. <laughs> That's not what I'm doing. No, it's not what I'm doing. And the other thing about the story is that it's the dark, dark night, the dark, cold night in which all of this happens. 
And in, in that darkness and that coldness, that is where, and that alone, that loneliness, that is where just the few converge, the kings, and this one little spark ignites. It's one little spark in darkness that, that illuminates and, and starts to come into being. And this is represented by the season as well. Just the winter solstice, this is the pattern of the winter solstice. This is the darkest, coldest time of year before things turn around and it starts to get a little bit more light. The, the days are getting, uh, the darkness is getting longer and longer. And then as the winter solstice hits, oh, we can start getting a little bit more light every day. And that heralds the coming of spring. So this is the point at which it gets real Zoroastrian is that the ho the Persian holiday that's uh, associated with Zoroastrianism in the winter solstice is called Yalda. And as a matter of fact, it's still celebrated by Persians. So you could probably go through, I mean, they have like table settings and stuff like that and, and they I've burned candles and you could probably go through and find symbols and say, oh, we still do that. This is really from Zoroastrianism. But the only thing I'm going to talk about is the dark and light thing that that is that is a um, aspect of the Zoroastrian practice of Yalda that it represents the ultimate darkness, uh, the the expansion of darkness, almost to the point where it takes over everything and then bam, there's this little spark of light which heralds a change and that that light might, might grow and might grow. And this is part of the metaphysics of um, Zoroastrian. It's part of the cosmology of Zoroastrianism that the force, uh, Angra Mainyu, the force of uh, the angry mind, the force of uh, mechanicalism, and ignorance and hatred and destruction and pain and suffering and all of that nasty shit and darkness it 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 wins in the fight you know it 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 expands i mean that's our experience we just see it expanding every day but because of the existence of the principle of consciousness principle of isolated intelligence. What that means is that there is hope because all it takes is that tiny spark to beat all of that back. All it takes is within you to ignite that spark. All it takes is within you to remember yourself, to return to stillness and to quietude and by establishing that spark, all of the darkness begins to recede from there on out. And this is the secret of spirit incarnating into matter. And so with that, my friends and fellow daemons, I want to thank you for supporting me up to a 100th episode and listening along with me on this journey. I uh, plan to continue it on. We'll see what happens in... 2023 by the way 
that's going to be a very interesting year for 23 aficionados. There'll be uh, a number of 23-23 dates that we can make a big deal about. Um, so I, I look forward to all the may magic and mayhem uh, that surrounds all of that stuff. So with that, I wish you all the very best as the darkness of 2022 begins to wane and melt and give way to the fire and the light of 2023. Keep fighting the good fight and keep the dark fires burning.